Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, <laughs> and welcome to First Day. This is First Day. This is the Lord's Day. And it only makes sense for the Lord's people to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day. And for those of you online who couldn't make it today, or maybe for those of you who may be just checking us out, please know that we love you and we can't wait to see you. And we've got a place reserved for you right here. Well, we're walking slowly. We're smelling the roses as we go through this amazing landscape called the Sermon on the Mount. This is our 24th message on this topic. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is one that can be gotten a blessing from if you just read it all in one setting and just get an overview type message. But it's been my privilege, and I trust it's been to your benefit, that we are just going through inch by inch, just uh, squeezing out to every last drop. And frankly, we even through, could go through it more slowly too. But I've uh, been such a privilege to go through it. Today's message, judge, but do so with righteous judgment. The question is asked, should Christians judge other people? Now, the surprising answer is yes. But to qualify that, it is maybe better to say yes and no. This particular statement of our Lord, judge not lest you be judged, is one of the most misused, misquoted, and misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Typically, when people use this verse out in the world, for sure, it is that they want to justify some of their life choices. And so they pull out the don't judge me card. They are expecting us to immediately accept the fact that they want to have an affair, or they want to be a man, or they want to be a woman, or they want to be a yak, or whatever. <laughs> but Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Now, whatever Jesus was meaning by that, one thing we're sure of, he wasn't saying you should not evaluate choices as either sinful or correct. In fact, Jesus himself, on a very regular basis, told us to discern between good and evil. And he himself was uh, quite clear about what is sin. See him for a moment uh, with me in your mind's eye in the temple overturning those money changers' tables. Or, for example, when he looked at everybody and he said, you need to discern people by the fruit of their life. Or, as some have said, learn to be a good fruit inspector. Now, the problem of these verses, or the challenge maybe, is that we forget about the rest of the verses 
and that command to judge not. Now it is true the Christian is called to unconditional love, granted. But the Christian is not called to unconditional license. It is very possible, the old true bromide, that it is possible to love the sinner and to yet hate the sin. No, God never condemns the judging of others. In fact, God actually encourages us to judge people. Here is what he requires. May I say, here is what the kicker is. And that is, when we judge, we must only judge by a biblical standard. And further, that standard ought to be the same standard that we want to be judged by ourselves. That's the issue. In this monumental Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals squarely with what appears to be one of the prominent faults of the day, which many of the fake religious leaders, and that's really who he was trying to show these people how to deal with, they were ruthless, and at the same time they were phony. I must admit it sort of reminds me of what we see going on in some parts of the Middle East, especially Afghanistan, where those religious Taliban leaders in Afghan, on one side they'll be into drug trafficking and sex trafficking. On the other side, they don't want the women even to have their eyes showing. There's just this crazy uh, lack of real consistency in how we judge. But those frauds centuries ago had a problem with fault finding and nitpicking. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves being self-appointed police over every issue that winds our clock, regardless of its real or true, in a world where entitled and demanding Kens and Karens, ready to blow up gasket at any conceived possible slight or anything that might be deemed misinformation to them, I think the real pandemic today really is a misunderstanding of what it means to judge. Yes, we need to judge, but it needs to be righteous judgment. And that's the message today as we go over just the first two verses of chapter 7. Well, it's been said that honesty is its own reward. A small town prosecuting attorney called a witness to the stand in a trial, a grandmotherly elderly woman, he approached her and instructed her, now, ma'am, I instruct you to tell the truth and nothing but. Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, Mr. Williams, I do know you. In fact, I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, I'm disappointed in you. You lie, you manipulate people, and you talk about folks behind their backs. You think you're a big shot, but you're not. Yes, I actually know you. Stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and he said, Mrs. Williams, do you know the defense attorney? She replied, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit for his parents. He's lazy, bigoted, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him, too. At this point, the judge wrapped the courtroom to silence, called both counselors to the bench, and in the very quiet, stern voice, he said, if either one of you asks her if she knows me, you'll be jailed for contempt. <laughs> uh, honesty. 
be careful what you ask for. Well, this morning we're going to talk about what true judgment means. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I look forward to this message. There's so much in it. I fear we won't be able to get it uh, in our minds uh, and spirits sufficiently, but Holy Spirit, I, I've done my part as far as I know, and I ask you to do yours. Help us, Lord. Get this into our soul. Help us to have a good understanding of these very important verses, especially in this hour we live. In Jesus' name, amen. The second president of the United States was a man by the name of John Adams. His self-described uh, biography is that he was a church-going animal. He once admired the Sermon on the Mount by saying, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain all my religion. And I agree. The Sermon on the Mount is an amazing, all-compassing message. Today we're going to look at the first six verses, or at least read them, of chapter 7. This is uh, probably a three-part message, at least two. We're going to take the first two verses, but actually it's an entire thought in all six verses. As we begin to read through them, we're going to read through them publicly as we do. But as you do so, I think you'll begin to see they really all work together. All right, so let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1. We're going to read through verse number 6. And the reading out of the classic authorized version, let's read it together. Ready, begin. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye? And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. All right. All right. I see two main concerns in these first two verses that we need to look at. First of all, a prohibition. Never have a critical spirit. Never have a critical spirit. And that's the essence of verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Now in order to get a scope of what we're talking about and what Jesus was referring to, let's dig a little deeper about what he means and really, first of all, what he doesn't mean by that. What is not included in the fact, judge not? First of all, it is certainly not the exercising of legal judgment. Now certainly, while all that goes on in the legal system today, and back then, was not biblical, especially today as we see left-leaning activist jurists undercutting the very Constitution of the United States of America. But the concept of voluntarily following a government's just laws is actually a God principle. For example, in Romans chapter 13, Paul was appealing to his fellow Jewish believer 
through, scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the book of Romans. These born-again Jews, he said, I want you to remember that you should try as much as possible not to poke the bear, as they say. Don't mess with the government. Don't try to get on their bad side as best as you can. Follow the rules. Verse 1, the powers that be are ordained of God. That doesn't mean they're spiritual. It doesn't mean everything they do is beautiful or perfect. It just means there's a God factor in it. Verse 4, he said, they actually are ministers of God for good. Meaning that despite their human frailties and their often inconsistencies, governments can create a more civilized environment. That's why we call it civilization. It's an environment where the gospel can go forth, and that's our main concern. When we're in a place, wherever we are at, is the gospel have freedom to get out? In a good civilization, it does. So when Jesus was talking about judge not, he was not saying that the judicial system or the law enforcement is in somehow bad. And uh, whether you know it or not, there are certain groups out there that use this verse to prove that we should defund the police. And they would like for us to get rid of our law enforcement or our prison systems or even our military. But I'll tell you what, here at this church, we thank God for these dedicated servants. I will tell you, if we did not have them, hell would have a holiday. And we thank the Lord for these men and women. Yes, we do. Jesus was certainly not saying we should defund the police and get rid of the judicial system. He was not also, also he was not saying that we shouldn't be discerning in our judgment. He's not talking about the forming of discerning judgment. Now the word judge there is the Greek word krino, K-R-I-N-O. The word krino actually throughout the New Testament has about a dozen or a few more shades of meaning. Depending on the context, you can kind of get the total accurate meaning. It means to separate. It means to choose. It means to determine. It means to evaluate. It means to even condemn. Like many words, you have to kind of read it with that which is before and after it to get an understanding. So Jesus wasn't simply saying, don't condemn here. He was saying, uh, we should make sure that we look at it wisely. In fact, in verses 1 through 6, he actually tells us to judge. If you read through that passage again, as we just did, notice what he said, for example, in verse number three, he said, I want you to discern if there are specks or beams, logs. Do you have a log in your eye? And then in verse number six, or excuse me, in verse number three, he talks about dogs. And then he talks about swines in verse number six. And so he says there are logs and there are dogs and there are hogs. And you need to discern on each one of those things. Be on the lookout for logs in your own eye. And if you're discerning that you're really dealing with a dog here, he said, then when you're around a dog, don't give that which is holy to them. Now that's pretty judgmental in the sense of the word, not judgmental bad, but it is righteous judgment. And then he said, actually, if you find that you're in the presence of a hog, he said, don't give pearls to them. He said that would be like casting pearls before swine. 
evidently in these verses he is actually telling us to actually do judging. He's just simply saying make sure that it is righteous judging. In Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, Paul was in the city of Thessalonica for about two weeks. That's all he was, two weeks. He was a missionary evangel. He went there. God did an amazing work in that great city. When he was leaving, he was brokenhearted. He just hated to go because it was just such a great revival. And he had established a church. He said, now look, I'm very fearful that there's going to be some uh, false teachers some fake religious leaders who are going to come in, and you need to be aware of them. I'm sure the first thing they were thinking was, well, how do we know what's going to be good or evil? And so Paul said, you have to judge. You have to be a good judge. And so he said in chapter 5, verse 21, prove, prove all things, or examine all things. Now that word prove or examine is the word for testing metal as to see if it's genuine. Like for example, if you look at gold and if you want to find out if it's real, you can either wear it for a few hours and you'll, when it turns green you'll know it wasn't. Or if you then somehow was to get a stamp, somebody validated that it in fact it is real deal. It was, you've examined it, you've judged it. The gold standard. And so what is the gold standard for a Christian? Well, the gold standard for anything is this. Is it biblical? When we examine something, really that's the ultimate question. I'm not saying that we should be suspicious people, but neither should we be gullible. As never before, folks, we are told in Scripture that these are the last days, and as we read Scripture we know that in fact these are the last days. Folks, Scripture says that in the last days there are going to be many false teachers. Look what the wonderful John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit. There's a spirit attached to the teaching that you're hearing. Get a sense of what's going on. Now even sometimes on the surface it may sound like maybe okay, but ask God to give you a sense of the true spirit of it, and of course always examine the real fundamentals of it. The roots and the, uh, the uh, tree itself, and then the shoots. And so when you find it all, you'll find out if it's really true or not. Folks, every dad has to learn to be a good inspector. Every mom, every pastor has to learn between true and false doctrine. That's the gold standard. Now how do you do that? Let me give you four quick rules of interpretation to find out how do you know if something is biblical or not? Number one, contextual placing. I know these are kind of big words, but don't let them blow you away. Just kind of get us, just kind of receive it for a moment. Contextual placing, meaning in the verse, what is before it and what is after? What is the context? Then the grammatical meaning. Really, what is the actual meaning of the word or the grammar. Now there are many. There was a very famous guy on radio a few years ago, and every time he would read a verse and it would say, we went to Galilee, he would say, well what that means is, uh, went in the Bible means that you could either go or not go, and Galilee was a symbol for heaven, it was a symbol for, and I mean, everything was allegorical. No, 
We need to, first of all, be literalists. And so grammatical meaning, historic, or excuse me, contextual placing, grammatical meaning, and then number three, historical setting. There's no way to understand Scripture without knowing history. Now, I know if you're in school and you don't like history, well, be careful because history actually is one of the rules that we must go by to understand properly Scripture. When Jesus, it says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, that's a historical setting. It's not the same marriage sense that we know today. And then a comparative balancing. There are four rules of interpreting Scripture. Comparative balancing. Scripture is of no private interpretation. There is no doctrine that stands on one verse. Every great doctrine in the Bible stands on a multitude of verses. And so we must compare verse with verse. Jesus was saying here, don't make sure that you are discerning in the gold standard, have and make sure that you are biblical. Every day you live, ask yourself maybe three questions. Is it biblical? Is it ethical? And is it moral? That's what Jesus was saying in this whole Sermon on the Mount. He was saying, folks, you're going to be faced with a lot of decisions. The first question you need to ask yourself, and a lot of doctrine, a lot of sayings, a lot of so-called truths, a lot of information is going to come your way. Always ask the first question, is it biblical? And then is it moral? And then is it even ethical? Now what is not included in Jesus' words, judge not. The exercising of legal judgment, the forming of discerning judgment, and number three, the declaring of God's judgment. The Lord was certainly not prohibiting the declaring of God's judgment against sin and even sinners. Jesus issued many very firm words, even hard sayings. You may remember in John chapter 6, Jesus was in the midst of a very uh, strong earthly ministry, and more and more the words that He was speaking, the doctrine He was laying out, weighed heavy on some of the people, even some of His disciples. They were beginning to get a little uncomfortable. They were beginning to feel like, man, this is a, it's pretty challenging. In fact, at this particular verse, the Bible says, many left him. Notice what they said. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Jesus did say a lot of hard things. For example, one time he said, let the dead bury the dead. It sounds kind of harsh or hard, but we have to dig deeper to understand His true meaning. Another place He said, you know, you need to start fearing God who sends people to hell. These are all strong words. Now there are some people who would say about words like that that that's intolerant or unloving, or it's hate speech. In fact, a popular word people say today is that's a fascist. But folks, being loving the Bible way never requires us to confuse good and evil or to contradict the clear teachings of Scripture. Because when we don't speak truth, it is not love at all. And rather, it is the greatest act of hatred. As one said, no truth without love, and no love without truth. Now it doesn't mean, folks, we have to be nasty about it. I'm not saying we have to be nasty about what we do and believe. But you will see a theme interwoven from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, about dealing with people.
And here's just something you could write down. In dealing with people and understanding how to talk to them and what to give them, because really in any kind of a conversation you can go any different direction. Here's one principle that I live by, and that is this. I give the law to the proud and grace to the humble. People say, oh, that's so hard. Well, there are people who only listen to a hard truth. But there are other people who you give them a hard truth and uh, you're going to blow them away. So we give the law to the proud and grace to the humble. Or, for example, if someone's got an attitude, you give them the law. But if someone's broken, or as our cart system might say, they're showing genuine remorse, then they get the grace. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now truth is truth, but we can give them law truth or the other truths in Scripture. Some are a little more challenging than others, but depending on the person's attitude and receptivity. When Paul, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5 was talking to the Ephesian church, he said, when you talk to people about sin, make sure that you reprove it rightly. Chapter 5, verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't give in to that sin, but in fact, reprove sin. Now some people are under the idea that if you reprove sin, you're a hater. Or if you don't put your arms around everybody else and say, all religions are good, everything's cool, that we're judgmental. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be so naive. Any religion that sends people to hell is not good, or it's certainly nothing loving about that. There are things in Scripture that are just wrong, just plainly wrong. The Bible says they're wrong, and so we can't solve them good for some reason. Immorality is wrong. Killing the unborn child is wrong. Drunkenness is wrong. That's not my judgment. That's God's judgment. People say, you're judging. That's God's judgment. All I'm doing is just reproving. I'm just saying what God says. Now, hopefully I can say it one way to those that are broken. Maybe I can say it a different way to those who kind of have an attitude. But whatever the case is, we, will mu we must give them the truth. Folks, it is not loving to not tell somebody the truth. People who are bound by sin to tell them that there's no hope for them, that they're born that way, I was thinking a few moments ago, we sang that great song there where it said, my chains are gone, all because of what Jesus did. Folks, that's freedom. That's great freedom to be able to tell somebody. But to tell them that they're born this way and that that's the way they must stay because that's the way they've been cut, folks, that is a terrible thing. That is the worst bondage of all. And we have a generation of young people who are being sucked down these swirling sewers of sin. And precious few people have the moral courage to lovingly say, that is wrong because God says it is wrong. And God wants you to have the best life. You need to be away from that sin. When Jesus said, judge not, he was certainly not saying that we shouldn't declare God's judgment. That's not mean, that's loving. We had the meanest mother in all the world. While other kids ate candy for breakfast, we had to have cereal, eggs, and toast. While others had Pepsi and a Twinkie for lunch, we had to eat sandwiches. Mother insisted on knowing where we were at all times. She had to know where our friends were and what we were doing with them. Because of our mother, we missed out on a lot of things other kids experienced. None of us have been caught shoplifting, vandalizing other people's property, were ever arrested for any crime. 
It was all her fault. We never got drunk, took up smoking, stayed out all night, or a million other things other kids did. Sundays, they were reserved for church, and we never missed once. We knew better than to ask to spend the night with a friend on Saturdays. And now that we've left home, we're all God-fearing, educated, honest adults. And we're doing our best to be mean parents, just like our mom. And I think that's what's what's wrong with the world today. It just doesn't have enough mean moms anymore. Now, there's nothing mean about somebody who protects the ones under their care. The prohibition, don't have a critical spirit. Now, what is included in the words, don't judge? Well, I think when words are un or thoughts or sayings or, or our opinions are unnecessary. First of all, when they're unnecessary. Frankly, many things we say are just uncalled for. Jesus reminded these people, as He reminds us today, nobody has been appointed judge, jury, and executioner over mankind. You would think the way some people share their ignorant opinions online anymore, hiding behind anonymity, that they feel like they are God Himself. They have a God complex for sure. The Holy Spirit could have not been any more direct and correct than in Romans chapter 14, verse number 4, in that insulting, almost get the sense of this phrase, who art thou? I mean, who do you think you are? Like that old song, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Stuff? Who are you to think that you can judge another man's servant? They are my people. They are my children. Don't you be judging them. Nobody has a right to issue a summons to their fellow creatures, their own personal courtroom, as though we're some kind of deity. For the most part, and hear me, for the most part, if people's actions do not concern us, or they don't affect us, pay no attention to it. Just like water off a duck's back. Unless I'm obligated because of my position or because of the circumstances I'm in, then frankly I should leave the exercise of judgment to those to whom it properly belongs. Folks, there's just really no reason for us to weigh in on everything that was on in the church. Everything that goes on in another family or another marriage or the neighborhood or at work. Folks, we don't need to be weighing in on everything that's out there. The poet said it this way. Here's one for Mrs. Snotty. She was a cantankerous old busybody, obsessed about butting into your life, whether you like it or not. She talks without speaking, hears without listening, Perhaps she lives in the most shallow place. She's addicted to gossip. She needs to mind her own business and get on with her own life. Folks, let's not be Mrs. Snotty and be weighing in on everything. There's just really no need for that. It's unnecessary. Number two, when it's unconsidered. Not infrequently, we humans form a judgment without adequate information. We don't have all the facts. We often opinionate with bias or prejudice, as the legal world says. Have you ever looked at that word prejudice? It's actually two words, prejudge. To prejudge somebody, often particular groups or persons, categorize and then disenfranchise simply because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, because of their age group, or because of their country. My friends, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying never judge, prejudge a person just because of something you see. While that's terrible, it's nothing new. We know that the, our Lord Jesus, the Bible says about Him, He was the altogether lovely one. He was without sin, and yet every single time those Pharisees looked at Jesus, 
Those guys, every time they criticized him. What he said, what he wore, where he went, what he did, I mean, it was absolutely, you talk about bigotry. 2,000 years later, I'm afraid to say that same bigotry still operates in the minds of many people. Just saying you're an evangelical Christian will trigger a whole response by so many people. Just you are dismissed and prejudged, as the Bible says there. Sometimes things are just unnecessary. They are also unconsidered. It's not good. And then finally, when it's unreasonable. When it's unreasonable. Unsad, sad to say, many of us feel like we know the motives of someone's heart. Or we're sure about their intentions. But that's not always the case. Take, for example, the Old Testament story of Michael. Not spelled as we know it. M-I-C-H-A-L. She was actually the wife of King David. Saul's daughter. She had some uh, issues, one of them, which was she was simply a bitter lady. And when she saw her husband dancing before the Lord, she looking out of that window there, I don't tell you, she was just bitter. But David was so happy before the Lord. Had she simply waited and got all the facts, she would have realized, and hopefully she would have come to a different story. I think wise Solomon nailed it when he said in Proverbs 18, verse 13, He that answers a matter, before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame. Now who would do such a thing? Who would have an answer before we hear all the facts? Well, the fact is, sadly, many times we do just that. We become unreasonable in our expectations when we're not really interested in helping, but in hurting. It's sad, tragic. It goes on in the Christian world. In the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon was a great English preacher. And he said this, he said, You can find hundreds of fault finders, but all their criticism will not lead one solitary soul to Christ. Folks, the problem with this kind of unreasonable talking, it really doesn't win souls. It drives people away. Did you know that I have never preached a sermon, I don't think ever in my life, where if I wanted to, I could go home and just, just pick it all apart. Now, if that's true about me, then I know that's possible. You could do the same thing. I remember when we had a guy, he just, poor guy, he just got so wound up, so bitter about some stuff, and he decided he was going to write down everything I said. And so, I mean, he was sitting back there. I mean, he had binders, and uh, he just would uh, make sure that everything was said right, and then I'd get a little note there that week, and you know, fortunately, it only lasted a couple of weeks, but I think he kind of got wore himself out. But, you know, he was going to make, he was the guardian of doctrine. He was the guardian of everything. I was like, you know what? If you're going to tear it apart, I've already torn it apart. Yeah, I didn't say everything I should have said. And I could have said it better. But the fact of the matter is, folks, there'll never be a perfect sermon. There'll never be a perfect preacher. There'll never be a perfect church until the millennium. And then Jesus will take care of all that. And so it's just unreasonable to do something like that. And so the prohibition, verse number one. Now let's go to the consideration of what happens when we do that. I think we need to be uh, think about it. There's always a payback. You see, judging is not a static issue. It's a very dynamic issue. Anytime we judge, it never just stops. The minute it goes out of our mouth, or in fact really in our mind, but the minute it goes out of our mouth, it is not going to stop. It's kind of like some of those uh, 
you know, uh, pictures you, people take, and then they get out on the internet. Folks, you never know where it's going to end up. Be careful about that digital footprint. There's always a payback. First, we can expect a similar response from man. Verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Like I said, it's a, it's a dynamic fact. It's not a static issue. It never stops. It always keeps rolling. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Be very careful, because what goes around comes around. Now, I'm not sure if a boomerang ever thrown by a person ever came back and killed the same person or not. I did happen to read this week an interesting little snippet. There in Australia, uh, archaeological find, an 800-year-old uh, find of an aboriginal man was laying there, a boomerang next to him with a chunk out of his own head. Now, who knows whether that was somebody else that threw it or he threw it himself. But I will tell you, the Bible says, when you take out your yardstick to measure, be careful that it doesn't become a boomerang. And the problem with boomerangs are when we start measuring other people, they come back and measure us. You know, Peter was our Lord's most outspoken disciple. I love Peter. But oftentimes, he was one of those open-mouth, stick-foot-in kind of guy. But he learned some grace over the years. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He said, you know what I've learned? He said, don't render evil for evil. Don't give railing for railing. Contrarize blessing. He said, live a contrarian life. When someone rails at you, bless them. When someone gets on you, give them back a blessing. He said, knowing that we've been called into this, that you should inherit a blessing. Dr. Ray Pritchard is an American pastor, well-known Bible teacher. He suggested several things that this verse might say. And I'll just give you some bullet points here. Blowing small things out of proportion. Maximizing the sins of others, their faults, their foibles. One person wrote, my problem, or excuse me, your problem, my situation. When you get angry, it's because you're ill-tempered. It just happens that my nerves are bothering me. When you don't like someone, it's because you're prejudiced. I just happen to be a good judge of human character. When you compliment people, it's because you use flattery to get your way. I only encourage people. When you take a long time to do a job, it's because you're unbearable, slow, and pokey. But when I take a long time, it's because I believe in quality workmanship. When you spend your paycheck in 24 hours, it's because you're a spender. When I do, it's because I'm generous. When you stay in bed till 11 a.m., it's because you're lazy and good for nothing. When I stay in bed a little longer, it's because I'm totally exhausted. He goes on to say, a quick and hasty negative conclusion making mountains out of mohills, passing along critical stories to others, having strong bias to others, to find others guilty, bearing or being harsh even when we're speaking the truth, taking pleasure in condemning others, telling the truth not in order to help but to hurt, and putting down others in order to make yourself look better. It's sad, the measurement that we often use. There was once a little boy who ex excitedly told his mom, he had just measured himself, and he was six feet tall. His mom looked at that little guy, obviously was not correct. And she asked him, well, why don't you measure yourself again in front of me while I watch? And she discovered the problem. 
when the boy took out not a 12-inch ruler, but one of those little 6-inch rulers you find in binders, and he had calculated well, he was, in fact, six ruler heights tall. He had just used the wrong ruler, the wrong standard. And we often fall into the same stand problem. We feel like that others should be to this standard, and yet we don't judge ourselves by the same one. I read a cute story, uh, actually comes from yesteryear. There was a certain pastor in New York, don't have his first name, but his last name was Potter, a pastor Potter, a Reverend Potter. He sailed for Europe in one of those transatlantic liners. He went on board. He told the story often when he preached. He found another passenger that was going to share the same cabin with him. After going to see the accommodation and took a look at his fellow passenger, he was not quite sure he wanted to, uh, sure about that guy. And so he went up to the hospitality desk and wondered if he could leave his gold watch there and the other valuables he had. He explained, he said, well, normally I don't ever avail myself of this privilege, but he said, frankly, I've been to my cabin and looking at the other man there, the other person in the cabin, he said, I don't know that he's a real trustworthy person. The clerk accepted responsibility for caring for the valuables and said, well, it's all right, Pastor. I'm very glad to take them from you. He said, actually, the other man has been up here and left his value for the same reason. <laughs> yeah, what comes around, it comes back on us, doesn't it? And so well, we can expect a similar response from man. And then number two, we can expect a suitable response from God. I will tell you, it grieves my heart, but I've been asked occasionally over the years to comment on the failure of another ministry leader. And I must tell you, it is almost impossible for me to do. I just hardly can do it. And most of the time, don't really know the purpose behind it. But I will tell you this. My, one of the reasons behind that is because, frankly, I have a hard enough time just keeping my home house in order. I don't really want to say a whole lot about anybody else. Trust me. God has a very accurate sowing and reaping principle. God has a divine payback list of any crimes against His people. And we can be sure that God is keeping record. This Apostle John talked about that in Revelation chapter 18. He said, be sure that in the tribulation period, those that are against God's people can be sure their sins will have reached to heaven. God remembers the iniquities. In fact, it says in verse number 6, she'll be rewarded even as she is rewarded. Friends, God calls us to live a life of righteous judging, but not unrighteous, remembering that there's going to be a payback. I read three excellent points of advice from a 1700s wonderful English cleric by the name of Dr. Charles Simeon. I modernized it a little bit. Let me give those to you quickly as we close. Number one, what should we do in light of this thought? Number one, search out diligently our own failures. You know, I think if we ever saw our own sins as God sees them, I think we'd be a whole lot less likely to judge others. I think one good example of that was Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 5. God gave Isaiah, one of the few men like Paul and a few others, John, God gave them the incredible opportunity to actually look into heaven. And what was his response when he actually saw God and all that God saw? 
Verse 5, then I said, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, a little self-examination really goes a long way. Warren Wiersbe is an excellent Bible teacher. Anytime you find something in him, you can read it with uh, just great clarity. He said, there are two extremes that must be avoided when we're going through this spiritual checklist. Number one, the deception of a shallow examination. Let's not be like what James talks about a man in James chapter 1 and verse 24, who does such a surface looking, well, I'm okay, he said. He looks in a mirror and then he just goes away, forgets. I'm really not that bad of a person. The first situation in that is that a deception of a shallow examination. But he also talks about some folks who find themselves in the deception of a perpetual autopsy. They get so wrapped up in personal examination, they become discouraged and defeated. God has called us to victory, and just like we sang so much about this morning. My sins are gone. Yes, I thank the Lord. They are gone, buried in the deepest sea. Search out diligently our own failures. Number two, consider what mercy we have received. God had every reason to just walk away from us. And yet in mercy, He saved us, shed His own precious blood, covered every sin. A forgiven Peter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 said, you know why we should have fervent love among ourselves? Because love covers a multitude of sins. God's love covered my sin, and I must cover yours. A Christian author wrote this, can the sick mock the ill? Can the blind judge the deaf? In the same way, can a sinner condemn a sinner? Be careful, friends. The Peter who denies Jesus at tonight's fire may proclaim him with fire at tomorrow's Pentecost. A stuttering shepherd in this generation might be the mighty Moses in the next. Don't ever call Noah a fool. You might be asking him for a lift. <laughs> Search out our own failures. Number two, consider what mercy we have received. And number three, cultivate a spirit of love towards all. I think most of us can find some reason why we did what we did, some excuses. May that be the rule of our conduct towards others. Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. He said, nobody is a bigger sinner than me. And yet when he was thinking about other people, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I love 1 Corinthians 13. I absolutely stopped. To me, it's like Psalm 119. I just, I can't get enough of that. 1 Corinthians 13 is just love chapter. He starts talking about all the things of agape type love. In verse 7 he says, love hopes all things. Not as judgmental, but hopes the best. Now, while we're hoping the best for somebody, that doesn't mean we uh, endorse their sin. That doesn't mean we enable their sin. But hope against hope, we pray for a transformation in the life of that person. Hope against hope. We hope the best. We don't endorse the sin. We don't enable the sin. But hope against hope, we hope that somehow they will be redeemed from that sin. Because God has redeemed me, and by His mercy, He's changed my life. I really feel like in these first two verses, Jesus is saying, 
judge, but judge righteous judgment. Make sure it's a biblical standard. Make sure it's a standard you're willing to be judged by yourself, and then do the best you can to bring others to Christ. And that is exactly, sin has to be preached so that lives can be convicted and they can receive the mercy and grace of God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.